There's one key theological principle that we can't walk away from when we talk about church, and that's this. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. The Christian life was meant to be lived in community. It's actually the amazing kind of perfection of the gospel. That the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus redeems our lives individually and then calls us to live those lives out in community. We talked about it a little bit last week when we talked about communion, that it's something we do and share as a community, but it's an individual experience. It's much like the gospel. The gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, is received as an individual. You aren't grafted into a saving relationship because your parents went to church. You aren't a Christian because you may have been baptized as a baby. You aren't a Christian because... For 12 years of your life, your parents drug you to the Methodist church or the Lutheran church or the Presbyterian church or the Baptist church down the street. You're saved because you put your faith and trust into Jesus Christ yourself. <clears throat> but that life, that regenerated, that new life is called to be lived in community. That's the picture of the New Testament. Transformed lives living together. The book of Acts is actually the picture of where this begins to transpire. Acts chapter 2, we call the birthplace of the church. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, fills the believers, and we get a picture of the believing church beginning to do life together. I think there's two real things that I think about when I think about what it means to live in community. The first one is sharing life. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me for a second. I forgot my big Bible somewhere, so I got this little, my first starter Bible here. <laughs> See if I can, I'm getting older. All right, so this is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, this is the, um, the, the little core group of believers, probably no more than 100 or 100 or so, thank you, I appreciate it, no more than 100 or so, 130, 140 gathered together saying this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising and enjoying the favor of the praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't know what your picture of church is like, but that's this is not what I just read is not the church I grew up in. The church I grew up in was great. But it wasn't this picture of church. I mean, look at some of these phrases. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to breaking bread, which is probably not only taking communion and sharing that experience together, but actually doing meals together. And to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the miraculous signs and wonders that were done. And the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their goods and possessions so that no one had any need. Now, I don't know if this is the church you grew up in, but it's not the one I grew up in. I mean, it's a pretty powerful picture if you think about what it means. 140 people living together, 
sharing life, sharing meals. We know they lived in their own homes. They just came and gathered together. Acts explains that later on, that they come from their homes. They go back to their homes. They'd share meals and life together. They shared and took care of each other's needs. See, the first part of living in community is really about sharing life. And I think there's two main failures here in the church. The first is that most of us don't well, first of us, most of us don't want to share our life with other people. We just don't want to. And it's actually not all your fault or my fault. Culturally, we have been trained to close our lives off. We've been trained to not leave our hearts out there, to not open ourselves up to the criticism, ridicule, examination, and judgment of other people. So we live walled-off lives. We fence our yards. We, we live in homes that are... Um, well, they're partitioned off from our neighbors. And our churches really aren't any different. Each week we walk into church feeling like we're probably the only family that's not going to have their picture on the website. Or we're the only family that, that's struggling in, in a marriage. Or how come our kids are going crazy and everybody else's kids are sitting there like little angels? Because we've been accustomed to creating, I think, a life that, that wears a mask for the world. We want people to desperately believe that we have it together. We don't want them to think we're perfect. We just want them to think that we have it together. So we don't want to share our lives because the truth is if we share our lives, we become exposed for the mess that we really are. See, we're more than welcome, or we're more than excited to welcome another family into our home for dinner. But we don't really want you staying for the weekend. You know why? Because of the weekend, things get messy. Haley throws a tantrum and punches her brother in the stomach. And then he tells me he hates me and runs to his room because I didn't buy him a Star Wars action figure. And then we've got to go talk about why we don't use the word hate and how daddy really loves you and how mommy works really hard to put dinner on the table even though you don't like broccoli. And somebody screams and throws it, the dog bites somebody, and then all of a sudden somebody's crying and we all go to bed at 7.30. That's the weekend. I mean, come on. If we're honest, our lives are messy. I want people to see us when they come over and we got the dishes out and it's all set and Haley folds her fingers and she prays and it's wonderful. And everyone loves the fact that, man, the praetors, you know what? For all they're not, they've really got just really good family. Right? I mean, I don't want them to go, I don't want to go to the mall and see Cooper laying on the ground in the prone position screaming, saying, don't touch me! And I'm thinking, everyone thinks I beat my children. And I may start. No, I'm kidding. That's the part of our lives we don't want people to see. We don't want people to see that we, we, you know, we want people to see that we walk in here holding hands with our wives and our husbands, but we don't want them to see that at home we have yet to figure this thing out. At some point in time, sharing life means that we've got to become real. I mean, I'm not saying we're supposed to stand up and admit our giant faults and sins for everybody. But at some point in time, we just have to let the mask down and say, you know what? I mean, I am who I am. And I need you to love me anyway. We've got to get rid of that part of us that doesn't want to let people in. The second failure, I think, is that we don't really know how to. So you're sitting here saying, well, Trub, 
I hear you say that, but what does that mean? I mean, do I walk in here and, you know, during prayer request time next week, I've got to tell everybody that I'm struggling and our, and our daughter's, you know, doing this and I'm struggling. And I'm, no, not necessarily. It just means that we've got to recognize that our lives and our things belong to the Lord. The way we start this process is by recognizing that our stuff is not ours. And that includes our lives. My children aren't mine. They're the Lord's. I've been blessed with the opportunity to try and raise them, but really, they belong to God. And I can show you a thousand places in Scripture where the Bible tells us that the stuff that we've been blessed with is the Lord's. That car you drove up in or the bike you rode in on or whatever, it's not yours. It's God's. And the church has given into this mindset that, that's culturally saying, I'm going to hoard all my things. And when my house gets too small for my things, I'm going to rent a storage place to hold my excess things. We hold this mentality that says, these things are mine and my life is mine. But if we really understood that that picture of church here was that it was all the Lord's. Now, I know this is where everybody's getting really uncomfortable, and I'm not asking you to bring your things here, okay? But think about this. They sold their possessions and goods as there was needs. So we've got a widow in our midst. She can't work, and culturally in the first century, she's looked down upon literally as almost a waste of space because she didn't have a husband or sons to take care of her. And so culturally... It was a responsibility of the religious people to take care of the widows and the poor. So what did the church do? Well, we didn't have money, so we just sold some stuff to make sure she had food. You know, the other flip side of this is that we live in a consumer-entitled society that says, too, as well, you need to give me. And our churches are filled with that as well. You owe me. Or give me, or I have a need, so somebody needs to fill it. We have people in our community, in all church communities, that have needs, and so they think that they deserve to have those needs filled. Sometimes they're, they're basic necessities of life, and sometimes they're just, the church owes me because I've been giving for years. They owe me to have this program. And we walk in our church doors expecting you to meet every need that I have, and when you don't, we leave and go find a church that does. So we build these colossal buildings with gyms and structures and sand volleyball courts and coffee bars and stuff to appease the consumer mentality of our churchgoers so that we won't leave and go somewhere else. Now I know there's more to it than that. But on the bottom line, it boils down to that for me. The church does have a responsibility the people have a responsibility to say, this isn't about me. See, the gathering we read about in Acts 2 is not about me. It wasn't about me. It was about us and how we're going to survive together. And what happened? The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They enjoyed the favor of the people. So what happens when the church begins to be the church? 
It doesn't wall itself off in a little commune and stay at 130 forever. In fact, in a short chapter later, we see God add 3,000 people to their number in one day. The church was exploding because it was living in a way that was so radically countercultural that it was affecting everyone. See, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly is called to share life. In order to do that, we've got to let down our barriers, open our hearts, and begin to recognize that the stuff that we have is all the Lord's anyway. So let's just love each other. We come here, somebody shares that they're struggling, and we love that and embrace that. But it also means that we've got to be willing to share that we're broken. We have needs. The second real thing, I think, that comes out of what it means to live as community, besides the sharing life, comes out of the book of Hebrews. I've talked about this before, but I just like it too much to not talk about it again. Chapter one or chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And it's really about living intentionally, living with intention. Listen to these. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews first. The book of Hebrews was written to the Jewish converts. They're Jewish people that have been converted to Christianity and were living in community together. And there perhaps was no more difficult life to live than a Jewish person that had converted to following Christ. Because you were cast out by your family. By 6,000 years of history, you were basically thrown out. You were telling the family that not only did you not believe in what they were saying about the Messiah but that now you were going to gather and do life with a different set of people. And it was, it was a tremendous thing. It was difficult to be a Jewish convert, and, and probably still is, but especially then. So this book was really written to the Jewish converts. It talks about how to blend things like the law and your faith, how to understand the role of Abraham and the role of Christ. I mean, it's a fascinating book. But at the very end, chapter 13, there's some concluding remarks. And this is what the author says to these Jewish converts huddled together. Listen, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. You know, it's interesting. Living with intention means... It means understanding... The part of this process is making some changes that begin with the way I think. The first part of that says, keep on loving each other as brothers. If the church would stop living as acquaintances and start living as family, things would change. I don't know how many of you got family. Thank you, Jimmy. I don't know how many of you got family. But mine's, it's probably like yours. It's got its great moments and it's got its unbelievable chaos. We all have that crazy uncle that comes at all the wrong times. Wonder why he doesn't have a shirt on. We all have people in our life that make us crazy. We all have those moments where that Christmas was the perfect picture wrought out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And we all have the ones that we're trying with every ounce of energy we have pretend didn't happen. I have a brother, and I love him dearly. And we fought growing up like crazy. But he's my best friend. I don't throw him out because he and I have some differences. I love him. So when our author says to keep on loving each other as brothers, he's saying, listen, as community, it's like living as family. What if we decided that we were going to quit shaking hands 
and just saying hello and started saying, you know what, I'm going to love you in a different way. What do you do with family? When family's struggling, when they're on the streets, when they're having a tough time, when they're down and out, you do whatever you got to do to help them. It's a lot harder to turn your back on family. It's easier to turn your back on acquaintances. You just kind of pretend you don't know what's going on. But when you know a family member's hurting, when you're struggling, when you know that a a member of your family's mother or sister or brother is dying, it breaks your heart. With acquaintances, we can kind of wall it off a little bit and say, oh, I'm so sorry that's happening to them. But when you listen to your sister-in-law talk about her best friend from college who's struggling with cancer and may not make it. It breaks your heart because it breaks her heart. See, family takes on a different connotation. Part of living as a church is saying, I want to live with that kind of intention. The second part is uh, right out of that second verse and says this, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so people have entertained angels without knowing it. It's probably a reference to Abraham or out of the book of Judges, uh, Manoah or Gideon. All, all three of those, those guys entertained people, strangers, let them in their homes and their lives, and turned out they were actually messengers from the Lord. may even refer to the guys walking the road to Emmaus. Remember, they had just left the uh, crucifixion. Jesus had been, been crucified and was dead, and they were walking back, and they were downcast and upset. And Jesus actually comes and walks alongside them, and they have no idea it's him. They invite him to come in and eat with him, and when they break bread together, they recognize it's Jesus, and and, uh, they just basically go crazy. Probably a reference to something like that. But nonetheless, don't forget to entertain strangers. What if we, we, uh, we took that idea that sharing life meant that we'd open our homes and lives to people we don't know? Now, I know that there are a thousand reasons why you should invite a stranger into your house. I know it. But just think about the underlying principle for a minute. What if we are willing to risk a little bit to know people? What if for that person that came in our community for the very first time, we were willing to risk enough to invite them to come to lunch with us after? We don't know them. We just met them. What if we were willing to risk enough to say, we're wide open? It's kind of why we do our little Sunday night monthly dinners and invite the world to come. We don't actually know who's going to come. And those of you that have hosted at your house have asked me those questions. What if people come that we don't know? And part of my response is, well, then I guess we'll feed them and we'll just see what happens. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of good answers. Part of living as a family of God, the ecclesia of the gathering, is saying, Okay, Lord, this is out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to open my life to somebody. You'd be surprised by what you find. I'm not going to tell you you're always going to be pleased. I'm not going to tell you you're never going to be hurt. I'm just going to tell you that you'd be surprised by what the Lord does. And the last thing I want to make mention of as we kind of close our time is simply this. Look at the last part of verse, or last, uh, verse 3 out of chapter 13. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. There's an element to living as a church that calls us to love the marginalized. To love the people on the fringes of society. It's very easy to love people that look like us. Or look like you. Or live in your circle. 
whether that's affluent or not affluent. It's just easier to love people that we identify with. But what about people we don't identify with? What about those that are in prison, that are mistreated? What about those that are both here in the city and around the world that are in bondage? What about those that suffer from addictions or those that are imprisoned? Rhonda and Allie and Dustin and Farrell can probably tell you about some of our experience in Africa. Um, we did some prison work there, and it was remarkable. Um, this verse really got new life for me. In the prison system in Africa, I think I've told I've talked about this before, but in the prison system in Africa, you're forgotten. You go to prison and you get nothing. No bed, no food, no basic necessities, no bed, no bowl, nothing. If you get anything, it's because somebody on the outside loves you enough to bring, brings it, and brings it to you. So when we went in and did prison ministry and preached the gospel in the prison, we took reed mats, we took blankets, we took bowls for food, we took Bibles and things, because the people in prison don't have, they don't have clothes. There's an element to this text that's really engaging to me. It says, remember those in prison or the forgotten. Out of sight, out of mind, it's easy for the church to not worry about those we don't see. But part of our calling is the community of God, the ecclesia, the gathering, is to remember those that are on the fringes. It's why we've got to have a global heartbeat. It's why we do Bible study on Wednesdays down in the park with a lot of our friends down there. Because part of living as a community is saying, you know what? We want to follow God wherever he goes. You've heard us talk a lot uh, since about August on about the concept of life groups that are going to be starting. We've intentionally kind of waited to try and develop an identity as a community before we launched into our, our life group plan. Over the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing more and more about that with a rollout coming around Easter. But our life groups are going to be different from any small group experience you've probably been a part of before. Our life groups are built out of this concept of Hebrews chapter 13. The challenge is that every member in our community will be involved in a life group. Our life groups will be set up around, around stages of life, but really they're open to whoever. Wherever you are, whatever your walk of life is, we'll give you some more specific details. But I want to give you the idea. Those three principles in Hebrews 13 are what I believe should govern the life of the community together. That we live with such intention that we love each other as family. That we're willing to take what we preach and talk and, and learn about on Sunday and live it out together. See, this is not how we're called to live. This is just how we're called to worship. I mean, this is just an aspect of our life together where we live these words is outside these doors together. You can't expect to show up on Sundays and call that your community existence. Just worship together where we hear the word and it's great. But we live it outside these walls. So we gather together and we live as family. It means we open our hearts together and we listen and we pray and we talk and we laugh and we help raise each other's children and we eat together and we argue at times and we move each other in and out of houses and we just do family life. The second principle that's there is that we talked about is that we really live in such a way that makes the world around us recognize that something is radically different. 
We're always open. We entertain strangers. We're open to the world. Our life groups will never be closed. They'll never be closed communities to say, we've been meeting together for you know, so many years. We are always open. Whether it's your first time or your 17th time, come. We want you here. When our life group's too big, we split and build new ones. But they're always open. And then finally, we always love the marginalized. It means our life groups will have a component of mission. Every life group will own and love a section of the city. Whether it's city rescue mission or whether it's a neighborhood or whether it's good home park or whatever, part of our heartbeat will say, how do we live this life around us? Maybe our families will do weekly or, uh, I mean, excuse me, monthly or, or quarterly cookouts for um, Sweet Linda's new apartment complex. Maybe we come over there and we cook burgers for your apartment complex. Invite your neighbors. I know you don't like all your neighbors. <laughs> we just begin to live differently. So the next few weeks, what you're going to be hearing about is that. Part of the challenge of the community is to say, that's how I want to live. The ecclesia, the gathering, the church, it's about sharing life and living with intention. Let's pray together.